Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. It's not been a quiet summer for economists. We've had fears of recession and a dramatic turn in monetary policy in Europe and the US, plus another round of tariffs and tough rhetoric in the US-China trade wars, not to mention Boris Johnson and Brexit. We're going to be getting into all of that one way or another in this season of Stephanomics. Between now and mid-November, we're also going to take a particular interest in the themes of the second annual Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Beijing, when a few hundred senior business people, politicians and thinkers will be gathering to talk about the world's biggest challenges and how to overcome them. Trade, unsurprisingly, is one of the big themes. And since we were last on air, our senior trade reporter Sean Donnan has been to the American Midwest to gauge the impact of trade wars on the ground. I'll be talking to him in a minute, and I'll be playing you the interview I did with the World Bank's chief economist, Penny Goldberg, who is one of the smartest trade economists anywhere. But first, here's Sean's report. With your help, we're not only unleashing American energy, we're restoring the glory of American manufacturing And we are reclaiming our noble heritage as a nation of builders again. Nation of builders. When he ran for president in 2016, Donald Trump made it a signature promise to restore the greatness of American manufacturing. And for the first two years of his presidency, it looked like that was happening. Trump's tariffs on imported steel and aluminum encouraged the opening of new and shuttered plants making raw steel and aluminum. The U.S. added more than 400,000 manufacturing jobs. But things have turned in America's factory sector, thanks partly to Trump's trade wars. And that direction of travel tends to be what matters more going into an election year like 2020. The broader U.S. economy might not be in a recession, but manufacturing sure looks like it is. There's been a procession of data in recent months showing the sector is slowing. One key index showed the sector not only contracted in September, but had its worst month since the dark days after the financial crisis a decade ago. Other reports have shown factory output declining in the first two quarters of this year, which meets the usual definition for a recession. The slump in manufacturing is starting to hit employment. 
In the first eight months of 2018, the U.S. economy added 170,000 manufacturing jobs. This year, just 44,000 through August. But in some important states, the trend is grimmer than the national statistics show. 22 states have actually seen a decline in manufacturing jobs in 2019. And those include some politically important places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. In both of those states, Trump's narrow wins in 2016 helped deliver him a national victory. This would be an example of a manure spreader, and these are some uh, feed mixers. Right. You know, I always say, uh, I always refer back when it comes to uh, the uh, steel turfs. Remember when uh, Wilbur Ross last last March was on TV with that Campbell soup can? Okay. <laughs> and uh, he said uh, six cents of one one cent. What's yeah. it going to matter to anybody? Yeah. This is our Campbell soup can, and it's a lot more than six t- okay. cents of one cent. That's Greg Petrus, the president of Kuhn North America, which makes farm equipment. We were standing outside his factory in Broadhead, Wisconsin, a small town near the border with Illinois, and we were talking about just how much Donald Trump's trade wars have hit not just his business, but the economy in America's heartland. How much is it? Oh, the, the, uh, we saw increases of uh, you know, 1500 or $2,000 a unit just in material cost. Really? Uh, so, just and how much does that sell for? That. Really? Oh, some of these units could could run uh, between eighty-five to one hundred and fifty grand. Okay. Yeah. So. And you were saying, uh, but so, you know, so fifteen hundred dollars. There's a reason most economists think tariffs are a terrible economic policy tool. Protect one domestic industry, and you generally hurt another. You also tend to unleash a raft of unintended consequences. Slap a tariff on imports from a country, say China, and it will slap its own right back. You'll also raise the cost for businesses that rely on imports from that country. Hit the economy and growth of one of your major trading partners, and you are likely hitting demand for your own exports. Trade wars also have a tendency to escalate. And as we're now seeing in the global economy, their consequences are broad, they're hard to contain, and they're unpredictable. But for companies like Kuhn, the impact is very real. Just a month ago, almost half of the 600 workers at that Wisconsin factory were furloughed for two weeks. The same thing is happening again this month. In your little part of the economy, what does it look like? Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's terrible because uh, um, demand is weakening. Um, prices are going up, right? On our input side, we have to pass that along to, to the customer. And there's so much uncertainty that just, just uh, makes the challenges that much worse. Kuhn has always used domestic steel, but that's cost the company $2.5 million more in the past year. It also spent a million dollars paying tariffs, including $138,000 on one type of ball bearing and imports from China alone, which is why Petrus bristles whenever he hears Trump insisting China is paying the tariffs. And it's just an outright buy, and he knows it. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's incredible. It's, uh, it's, really, it's really hard to come in in the morning and, and hear that on the, the CNN radio um, on the drive-in, yeah, and, and you're like slamming, you're slamming your fist on the steering wheel. It's like, why would you tell people this? 
Farmers have been hit hard by the trade wars, and that's hurting Kuhn. Canada, Mexico, and China have all retaliated against Trump's tariffs. That's hit U.S. agricultural exports and farm incomes. Four years ago, the factory on the edge of Broadhead was humming along. The plant, along with a sister factory in Kansas, were on the way to $400 million in sales. This year, Kuhn will record just $250 million in sales in North America. Petrus says the Broadhead plant is running at roughly 50% capacity. The future is bright in agriculture. I mean, we, we believe yeah. in it uh, for sure. Uh, as long as population grows, there's going to be uh, more food needed on not much more land. Yeah, so that's the message uh, we continuously send to our, our employees. We'll get through this, but uh, when we're going to pull out of this cycle, who knows? The slowdown has meant paring back everything from shifts in production to investments. Kuhn is continuing the work of automating its factory, but it's holding off on a new R&D facility that would cost $4 million. We need to keep investing if we're going to be competitive in the future. We're you know, planning for the, for the long term. But it's kind of, uh, it's kind of uh, frustrating uh, when you do that year after year after year and you run into a fourth year of a down market yeah. and then you run into these uh, outside forces that, uh, yeah. that just uh, make, it, make it worse and, and extend yeah. the downturn. Yeah. Of course, it's far from certain where the U.S. economy will be a year from now or what the political ramifications will be when voters go to the polls in November of 2020. The Trump administration argues any talk of recession is overblown. Larry Kudlow, who is Trump's chief economic advisor, recently said that the president is a tough negotiator looking for the best deal. Here he is on Bloomberg TV last month. Never underestimate the strength of this country or the strength of this president. President Trump is doing what presidents have not done in the last 20, 25 years. He sees the unfair trading practices. He wants to protect our country, our workforce, our technology, our farmers, whatever. He is not going to relent. And by the way, in sheer political terms, I think the president has enormous support with respect to a rebalance and a big change in our relationship with China. Kudlow also said the economy is very strong. But ask Jim Palm about it, and you get a bleak reply. He's the purchasing manager at Kuhn's factory, and in recent months he has fielded more and more cold calls from fabricators offering their services. That's a sign that many factories have spare capacity and are chasing work. It's his own leading indicator. You can tell with a healthy economy by all of a sudden these phone calls. That's why they do the purchasing managers index, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's where a lot of them come from. This isn't just about business or economics, of course. The last time the U.S. saw a drop in manufacturing jobs was in 2016, and that helped Donald Trump and his protectionist trade message in some important industrial swing states where his narrow victories put him over the crucial threshold of 270 votes in the Electoral College. According to Mark Muro, a researcher at the Brookings Institution, Trump is more exposed politically to a downturn in manufacturing than any Democratic rival is likely to be. Nationally, we see Clinton counties have half, little less than half the manufacturing concentration than Trump counties. So Trump counties significantly much more, more oriented towards uh, uh, manufacturing. If you look at, let's say, three or four top battlegrounds in the Midwest, you're talking 
22-23% of employment in manufacturing compared to much lower, you know, single digits for the rest of the country. So these the short number of places are heavily concentrated. And Trump Trump is dependent on a base that is much more oriented towards uh, manufacturing. Trump may be a unique politician, but in politics, promises do have a tendency to come back and bite you. Trump is heavily committed to you know, promising a manufacturing turnaround. Unfortunately, manufacturing is beginning to slump. Uh, we saw a contraction in the second quarter. And the Democrats aren't really talking about this per se. Greg Petrus wouldn't tell me at first who he voted for in 2016. He later emailed to tell me he had voted for Trump, thinking that he was the pro-business candidate. I won't. I won't next time around. That's for sure. Who won't next yeah. time around? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm a Republican. Okay. And uh, I, I moved a lot, a lot to the center. Let me tell you that. And I would it just I'm, in the last two you know, years, or it, in the, oh yeah, I'm completely open to voting Democrat. For Petrus, his vote in 2020 won't be just about trade, but what he is seeing unfold before him certainly hasn't helped, and that's something worth paying attention to. The trade thing is just—I mean, it's just—it's just stupid. For Bloomberg News, I'm Sean Donnan. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So Sean is here. Uh, thanks for joining us again on Stephanomics. Thanks for having me. Uh, listening to that, I'm interested. You spend you've spent so much time on this trade war at different levels of it. Was there anything that surprised you uh, out in the heartlands from what you heard? Yeah, look, I had two big takeaways from reporting this piece, and the first of them, the first of it is, uh, we look at the aggregate numbers for economies to our own peril. I think in some ways, it's the geography of upturns and downturns that actually matter, uh, especially in, in in the political context. So, you know, the economy looks different in Broadhead, Wisconsin, than it does sitting here inside the Beltway here in Washington, or uh, from what it looks like in New York City or in uh, in parts of Michigan right now, where they're dealing with a GM strike. Uh, you know, we need to think not just about those aggregate headline numbers, but about what's happening down on the ground in different places. The second thing I took away, which was uh, was a sense of foreboding in, in a way. Everyone I talked to in reporting the story from Greg Petrus at, at Kuhn to Tom Leinbarger at, at Cummings, a, a big diesel engine maker, had a common answer when you asked them what they thought the economy would look like a year from now. And it was not that it would look better. It was that they were preparing for things to get worse. And I think that's something that's really stuck with me as I've uh, been trying to think more about the, the impact of the trade wars and how things are going to play out. 
Yeah, I think a lot of economists would be fascinated to hear, especially the first thing that you said, because that's exactly how their thinking has changed over the last few years, particularly around China. And you probably know this, but the, the originally, you know, we've had this sort of view about open trade and opening trade to places like China. We knew overall that it was going to be good for the economy, but there'd be winners and losers. And the perception was that those that there would be. Uh, the, overall uh, people will be better off and that where places were really hurt those places you know people would move if they lost their manufacturing job they'd go somewhere else and what the research has shown again and again in the last few years is that actually people don't move and the impact of those uh, factory closures and and squeezes on on jobs from the competition that came from abroad actually was pretty permanent in a lot of these areas and some of those areas uh, then voted for Donald Trump so I think it it would ring very true for those researchers. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the great work by David Otter at, at MIT and others looking at the impact on, on specific zip codes. I think what's really interesting as well is how if I listen to the Trump administration today, in a funny way, they sound a lot like the Obama administration in 2016, insisting that we should be looking at the aggregate numbers, that things are going mm-hmm. great, and that uh, you know any pain out there is an aberration. It's not the true national story. And of course, in 2016, Donald Trump was doing exactly the opposite. So, Okay, so we have to lift our eyes from this to, to the day-to-day news. You've actually been, been helping to make some over the last week. What's, what's the latest twist in this in the saga, in the new direction that the administration, you, you and uh, your colleague Jenny Leonard found out the administration was considering? Yeah, so Jenny and I reported last week uh, that the U.S. uh, administration, the White House, is having discussions about how to attack the issue of financial flows between the U.S. and China and is looking at a whole series of options to essentially limit uh, the amount of American capital that flows into Chinese companies and markets. Uh, now, that is the opposite, uh, in some ways, of what U.S. administrations have done for decades. They've been encouraging China to open up so that financial investors here in the United States could benefit from the gains in the economy there and arguing that open markets would uh, you know, continue, continue the process of economic reforms in China would be the advantage of the U.S. Now what we're hearing from the administration is that really they feel, some hawks in the administration who we talk to, feel strongly that uh, U.S. capital that flows into China in some ways is helping underwrite uh, this economic rival that is rising and is the big strategic threat to the United States going forward. So we're seeing the trade wars. We've already seen uh, a kind of an attack on direct investment, Chinese investment in the United States. We've seen a, a kind of technology leg to the trade wars with the restrictions on Huawei and so on. But this is the, the kind of capital wars, if you will. And that's the, the next leg of where things are heading. Uh, do you, uh, when you step back, uh, those who are thinking about what does the trade war mean, not just for the Midwest of America, but for the broader global economy, are we going to see some kind of uh, 
uh, break out of, of, of peace. How is that looking? I mean, if you've already said, you know, we've seen an ex- expansion of the potential territory of this war, but also some positive signs uh, on just the trade aspect. Yeah, so we're in a new round of negotiations, if you will. We'll have uh, Liu He, the Chinese vice premier, coming to Washington uh, in the middle of October. Uh, We are expecting some substantive talks. We're not expecting uh, the two sides to come out and say they've hatched a grand bargain and and peace is upon us. Uh, But I think there's there's an important context. Again, we've got our step way back. And, and look at where we are. We are in a much worse place in terms of the economic relations between the U.S. and China and in terms of the tariffs that have been put in place now on some $360 billion in imports from China than we were a year ago or even six months ago. That has been a feature throughout of these trade wars that, that, that I think about a lot. We get a lot of talk about negotiations, truce, uh, some, uh, some temporary peace, uh, if you will. But underlying that has, throughout has been this kind of steady escalation. And it's a little bit the kind of the boiling of the frog uh, scenario, you know, where, where it's – uh, you you get these moments where they turn down the heat, but the heat is where they turn down the fire a little bit, but the heat is still going up, and eventually, you know, the global economy is going to suffer. Well, on that ominous metaphor, uh, I think I'll let you get back to uh, your reporting, but I know we're going to have you back on Stephanomics uh, in this series. But thanks very much, Sean. Thanks for having me. Now, in Sean's piece earlier, we got that grassroots perspective on Donald Trump's trade wars. Now, here on Stephanomics, we're always looking for ways to draw the dots between that kind of reporting and the big picture analysis you get from economists and other experts. I had a fantastic opportunity to do just that this week when I interviewed Penny Goldberg, the chief economist of the World Bank, when she was in London to deliver a lecture for a UK think tank. She's one of the world's foremost trade economists, and the subject of her lecture was the impact of globalisation on the distribution of income. We talked about lots of things, but I was most interested to hear whether her expert analysis could make sense of what Sean had been seeing and hearing on the ground in the Midwest. Now, I'm, I'm delighted that we're going to be able to also play some of this interview for my podcast, Stephanomics. And one of the things of the, the continual theme uh, on the podcast has been the trade wars and the impact of, mm-hmm. of trade wars. You highlight some interesting research showing that, that trade policy has potentially been much more important than we thought mm-hmm. to the growth of trade. You know, we've tended to emphasise the rise of the container and the reduction of uh, transport costs around the world. Do you think that's been borne out by the kind of impact we're seeing on the ground uh, of the recent tariffs in the last couple of years? So perhaps one positive aspect of the the recent trade tensions, of the recent trade war, is that people, and especially economists, have started paying attention to trade policy. And until two to three years ago, as, as you said, um, the prevalent view, both among policymakers but also among academics, was that trade policy had become irrelevant. And so why did we worry about trade agreements and the WTO and tariffs if, if trade policy was so irrelevant? Um, the current debate shows that trade policy does play an important role in ways that may be very hard to quantify. So if you try to assess the effects of the current trade war, 
several studies that have been conducted in order to assess the short-run effects don't find any huge impacts. You know, in the aggregate, the effects are small so far. There are distributional effects because trade always has distributional effects. But in the aggregate, we don't see a collapse of the economy. And to a certain extent, this makes sense because the United States is a very large country, so is China. The tariff increases we're talking about are relatively small. However, what we see is an increased degree of uncertainty. Business confidence is going down. And so in the medium to long run, this could have very important implications for the economy as a whole. Uh, this is where trade policy becomes important. What trade policy, what trade agreements, what the WTO did for globalization in the last few decades was not just reducing tariffs. It was creating a system of rules that was stable and predictable. And this allowed firms to make decisions that had long-run consequences. If you live in an environment where the rules change all the time, it's very hard for firms, but also for individual people to make these decisions. And that's perhaps the biggest cost mm -hmm. of what's happening right now. And it's hard to quantify that, so we haven't, we haven't seen the consequences yet. But this doesn't mean it's not going to be important down the road. And actually, we, we talked to manufacturers in Wisconsin and, 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 and mm -hmm. farmers in Alabama, but they're actually quite surprised by how much, you know, they thought it was going to be relatively small percentage changes in their costs, but they seem to have actually multiplied in their impact on the ground in terms of, for, for some manufacturers, the costs are quite significant. But you talked about the distributional consequences. I mean, obviously, it would be ironic if these tariffs, which were in part imposed in response to populist pressures and concerns about low wages and inequality, were themselves increasing inequality. But is that what you find? What's the distributional impact of these tariffs? So what we find, so this is some work I've done before joining the World Bank on the, on the short-run effects of, um, of tariffs, for the U.S. in particular. Um, the tariffs are paid by U.S. buyers. This was unexpected because many thought that because the U.S. economy is so large, part of the cost would be paid by the Chinese. So it was a bit of a surprise that we find what we call complete pass-through of the tariffs. So the prices went up one for one for the tariff increase. So what this means is that it's ultimately the U.S. side. It's the U.S. buyers, the U.S. consumers who pay the price of the, of the tariff increases. On the other hand, there were gains to producers. And the reason is there is intuitively there is substitution away from imports towards domestic goods. So eventually you see some gains, but the gains tend to accrue to producers, not to the consumer, not to the consumer side of the economy. I mean, it, it's interesting. Um, we should go back to this uh, farm equipment manufacturer that we spoke to because he said precisely, he got very cross. He was shouting at the TV to Donald Trump because Donald Trump was saying the Chinese are paying for these tariffs. And we have him saying, getting very cross, saying that he's paying for them, that the Chinese aren't paying them. You're saying he, he's right and Donald Trump's wrong. Uh, so our present <laughs> intuition is the intuition that most economists had, in fact, that the U.S. is, is huge, um, that there should be terms of trade effect, and, and they have not happened uh, yet so far. Yet. So, so we do find... I, I would qualify that, that, though, by saying that if eventually the exchange rate moves, then part of this cost may be actually paid by the Chinese, well, but... 
we have seen the exchange rate move. I mean, I guess yeah. that's the irony is that Donald Trump's been complaining about the, the mm-hmm. unfair advantage that the Chinese are getting from the exchange rate. But in a sense, that is the Chinese paying for the tariffs. In- well, it, it's ironic. So the exchange rate has moved a lot. And so the most dramatic move was when the latest tariff uh, increases were announced. And this, this was definitely in response to the tariff increases. But, but what's a bit odd is until seven or eight years ago, there were many accusations that the Chinese were manipulating the exchange rate. And that's why they were so competitive. So when the dollar became weaker vis-a-vis the Chinese currency, that that was actually a positive development from the point of view of the US. Uh, It made China less competitive. So to the extent that all this eventually leads the Chinese to again have a a lower-valued currency, I'm, I'm not sure this is a gain, given the background, given what has happened in the past. If you look mm-hmm. at the, the, the calls for a pause, or you might say actually the, the, the frustration with globalization and the, the sort of populist uh, furor, has produced some political responses. Uh, overall, would you say those political responses have, made the situ- have taken the situation in the right direction or in the wrong direction when you think of trade wars and other things? So a, a war is never a good thing, whether it's a military war or whether it's a trade or it's an economic war. Uh, in a war, there, as participants, say there are no winners and losers. There is just destruction. And that applies to economic wars as well. And that applies to trade wars. So if you ask me if I'm in favor of the current uh, the current trade tensions, no. But it, it just looks like the political pressures that have resulted from the uneven distribution of gains are actually producing policies that make the situation worse. Well, it's not just um, this rising inequality that has, that has produced these trade tensions. And, you know, that's, that's another topic I also cover in my talk. Um, there is also a certain perception among the advanced economies that the game has been unfair that many developing countries, many large developing countries, are not playing by the rules. And it's workers in advanced economies that ultimately pay the price. And I would add one more thing. I, I don't think the pressure is coming just from workers in advanced economies. I, I also think it's coming from businesses. And uh, you know, many firms, many big firms, complain there is no market access Do in you think, big developing do countries. Do they have a point? Do you agree with So that? I think there are some valid points here. The question is if this is the right way to address them. Um, so to a certain extent, you can. many of us thought when the trade intentions um, started arising, this was a negotiation tactic to address some long-standing concerns that had not been addressed. And these concerns are not unique to one country. They are shared by many countries. They are shared by the United States, by many countries in Europe. They are shared across administrations. So they're not unique to one person or one politician or even one, one particular country. Um, so the, the, the trade tensions, the, the current climate, is not just a response to inequality. It's also a response to all these allegations, all these long-standing allegations that the game has become rigged against advanced economies. We see all these pressures uh, working on globalization now, pushing it into reverse. When we look back, do you think we will say that this was when the world reached peak globalization? If you had asked me this question a year ago, I would have said no. Um, So when the trade tensions started rising, 
many of us drew parallels to what had happened in the late 80s and in the 90s with Japan. There were many similarities. Japan was rising. There were many concerns that workers in the United States were displaced, in particular industries, especially the automobile industry. There was a rise in protectionism. There were many concerns about market access. People even used exactly the same language to describe the situation. And what happened, actually, is um, there was a very short break. There was a rise in protectionism. And then we had the WTO. We had global value chains. We had the hyper-globalization of the 90s, and globalization went on steroids. So my first reaction last year was that maybe we're experiencing, we're experiencing exactly the same thing. Now with China, not with Japan. And this is just, just a short break. And eventually we'll return back to the old path. I'm not so sure anymore. I think perhaps we are at a turning point. It's hard to tell. But I do think that there are some elements that make the current situation very different from what happened with Japan. One of them is the sheer size of China. It's a huge country. The developing world is not where it was in the 80s or 90s. There are many countries rising. Uh, I do think that the current tensions are to a certain extent a defining feature of our society in the sense that it's no longer, I think, just about inequality or just about being a liberal or conservative or being in favor of big or, or small government. There is a fundamental question whether we're embracing a global environment, an open world, with all the challenges this brings. It brings many benefits, but each of us is now competing at a global scale with millions of people across the world. That puts an awful lot of pressure on people. So are we willing to embrace that? Or do we think it's better to turn inward and focus on our own countries? I think we're at this important turning point. The policy choices that we make in the next few years are going to be quite important. Professor Penny Goldberg, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this new series of Stephanomics. I'm so pleased to be back and next week we'll have even more on-the-ground insight into the global economy and more Bloomberg reporters. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so it can reach more listeners. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at MyStephanomics. The story in this episode was written and reported by Sean Donnan. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Scott Landman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. And you should really read Sean's original article on this in Bloomberg Business Week, which was edited by Christina Lindblad. Special thanks too to Professor Penny Goldberg and the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. 
for over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.